You have to be the spokesperson for whatever's going on at the moment that someone asks you that question. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Welcome back to the podcast that's about to do the second episode in a row from a facility in the state of Oklahoma. And yet, despite the fact that I work in musical theater, I'm not making a single reference to that absolutely horrible, horrible, horrible musical. You're welcome. That's right, y'all. It's the Rasafari Podcast. Whew, that one was a stretch, but I really, really don't like that that musical that I'm now referencing, despite saying that I wasn't referencing it, and also the joke itself re- referenced it. So, so welcome back to the podcast that is apparently re- repeatedly referencing the the horrible musical known as Oklahoma. Although, actually, to be fair, while I've, you know, got this on my mind, that that whole line in the song, Oklahoma, about the wind sweeping gently down the plains, yo, we got to talk about that for a second, y'all, because the thing is, as I drove through Oklahoma, visiting the Oklahoma Aquarium, which you heard on last week's episode, the Tulsa Zoo, which you're hearing on today's episode, and then also the Oklahoma City Zoo, where I didn't do an interview because I wasn't sure I'd be able to fit in a visit, but did get to hang out with their red pandas, which was really cool and really awesome, there were almost constant warnings about wind issues while driving. And I have to tell you, it legit felt unsafe. There were times that I was holding my wheel at like a 38 to 45 degree angle just to drive straight. And then the wind would stop and you'd be like, zing into the other lane a little bit if you weren't careful. One must pay attention when driving in Oklahoma because it turns out the winds don't sweep gently down the plane, but they like wail harshly across the roads and try to blow you into tractor trailers. I guess that wasn't as poetic of a line though. (laughs) Remember like two minutes ago when I was like, ah, yeah, I'm the podcast that doesn't reference the musical that I've then turned the intro of this podcast into a into a rant about. Sorry, but anyway, (laughs) that's enough about that for real this time. I want to remind you guys to make sure that you're following along at Ross Safari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and also at Ross Safari Pod on TikTok. You can check out the website, rossafari.com, for merch and podcastal websiteal things. And also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash rossafari and do that there. It means a lot and it really helps. Okay, so on the same day that I interviewed Dr. Ann Money at the Oklahoma Aquarium, which you heard last week, and if you didn't hear it, that is an insanely good interview. I highly recommend checking it out. But I also was able to visit the Tulsa Zoo, as they're only about a half hour away from each other. It was a a real good day, y'all. Sadly, I was not able to do an interview at the zoo that day, but uh, they did work with me and uh, we were able to set up a Zoom interview after I got to California. So you're going to be hearing that Zoom interview today, but it's one of those cool things where like I was at the zoo and I share stories about my time there and with some of the people that I met. And um, yeah, it's it's I would say a more um, in-person interview than most of my Zoom interviews, if that makes sense. I think a lot of the things that make the in-person interview special carry over to this one, which I'm really excited about. And I'm really grateful to the Tulsa Zoo for hooking me up and and giving me a great day at the zoo and then also making sure that the interview took place and was wonderful. I spoke with Joe Barkowski, who describes himself as the boss of the boss of the boss of the boss of a lot of people at the zoo. 
Uh, he's no longer super hands-on with the animals, but he is incredibly knowledgeable about all the things that are going on at the zoo. He has a really long title, which I'll let him share with you because I may have forgotten to write it down and don't feel like digging through the interview, but it would be unprofessional to announce that. Uh, so instead, I'm going to say um, I'll let him share that title with you in the interview so that you don't get bored when you hear it repeated. See, I'm smart because I'm not admitting that I'm being lazy right now. Um, but anyway, we talk about a lot of really cool things in this episode. And again, I don't really want to spoiler everything. I know when I started doing this podcast, I'd always be like, you're going to hear this, this, and this, but who cares? I'm going to let you hear it. So first, hear an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right. Well, good job hearing that ad. I'm proud of you. Seriously, I'm, I'm proud of you. But anyway, now you get to hear an interview with Joe Barkowski of the Tulsa Zoo. So why don't we start off by you telling me who you are, where you work, and what you do there. So my name is Joe Barkowski, and I am currently the Vice President of Animal Conservation and Science at the Tulsa Zoo. And um, that is a very long title that rarely tells anybody what I do. Um, <laughs> usually, uh, you know, out in public when I tell people and their eyes glaze over, I just say, you know, I work at the zoo. Um, I get to manage the people who manage the people who manage the people that do the really cool stuff. So I don't really do anything cool, but I, I get access to all of it. So that's that's fair. That's fair. And um, yeah, so we're going to we're going to spend some time talking about animals and some time talking about uh, conservation, obviously. But um, let's start off by talking about you. Uh, when you were young, did you always want to work with animals? How did how did you get started in this field? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I really liked um, the outdoors and, and animals when I was little. I, I really did um, seem to have a, a love for birds, um, which then paid off later in life, which I'll tell you about. But um, yeah, I loved watching birds when I was little and, and feeding birds in the backyard. Um, and again, our, our, our family, we had five of us and, and my parents were exhausted all the time. So we never had pets. Um, we were not allowed to really have pets because there were enough mouths to feed as it was. Um, so that was always the joke when I went away to school and for zoology and then worked at a zoo was, well, I showed you, I will have as many animals as I want for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so yeah, so, um, no, I really did. Um, I knew, um, I wanted to work in zoos and aquariums actually in high school. Um, I grew up in upstate New York and I got to go to a lot of great zoos in New York state. Um, uh, and again, I just, it was what I knew I wanted to do. And I, I fell into um, uh, an opportunity that there was a, a state university that offered a kind of a joint program. You went to state school for a couple of years and then you were able to transfer to um, Florida to a, a, a college that had a zoo program. And I thought, well, there it is. I, I never looked at anything else. I, I, I got my degree in a bachelor's in zoology. And then um, I spent a little over about two years at the um, teaching zoo in Santa Fe, at the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. Love it. And, they have, um, they've been on the podcast. They had me down when I was doing a gig down in Florida. And oh, I excellent. got to visit. Wonderful, wonderful place. Yeah. And again, um, so yeah, I, I, that was transformational for me because uh, you really are a zookeeper. You work with animals every day when you're working there. You learn how zoos work and aquariums work. So um, yeah, so I got to do that. I, I um, applied for jobs out of that, um, thinking, well, I know all my stuff and I know where I'm going and got nothing, um, as we usually do when you get out of college. But, you know, I, I, I moved back to New York for about a month or two and I was able to secure a job at the Houston Zoo um, in their bird department, nice. which was great because I really wanted to work with birds. And, uh, you know, this is really before the Internet. So I had no idea. I knew no one that lived in Texas. 
I packed up my car and uh, my animals and I drove there knowing no one. I got an apartment and started the zoo. It was great. Um, I worked at the Houston Zoo for eight years as a keeper and a supervisor in the bird department and uh, learned a lot and have many great colleagues and stories from then. I then wanted to, to step up from there. So I uh, left to become the curator of birds at the Sedgwick County Zoo, which is in Wichita, Kansas. And uh, another great experience. We got to um, really transform the bird collection there and grow it into what it is today, which is really impressive now. And I was there for 13 years. Again, it's time to move on. Um, and I was able to come to the Tulsa Zoo kind of just down the street in a way from where I was. And I've been here for nine years now in my current position. Wow. That's uh, that's like a really, that's a small journey as far as like places that you went. I feel like I talked to so many people and they're like, yeah, you know, I was at one place for a year and then another for a year. And eventually I found my home, but you really, you got into each place and like dug in. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed where I was and you're right. That, that's the good thing about our fields is that you can, you can move around if you want different opportunities, but there are a lot of really great places if you're willing to invest in it. Um, so yeah, I, I know a lot of people, you're right with the opposite story. They, they've worked at 12 different places and yeah, so I, I'm just fine with my three and I'm hoping that this is where, where I'll grow old. That's really cool. I love that. Um, so when you were, uh, when you were down in Santa Fe, um, was that, uh, you know, I know you had already studied zoology, um, but was that your first time really getting hands-on with like a lot of animals? Yeah, I, and I think that's why um, I'm a I'm a huge supporter of that facility and that program and the team there because um, you're absolutely right. It's uh, people often think they want to go and work in um, zoos and aquariums because oh my god, I get to do all those cool things. I think I think so many of us grew up um, when I grew up in the '70s and early '80s with um, if you got to go to SeaWorld, if you were lucky enough to be able to travel there to Florida or California, you saw people training whales and dolphins a lot of times it's very public you know you didn't see zookeepers otherwise they're the, we're all the people that are hidden behind the scenes for one reason or another so those are the people you see doing the cool thing and you think i want to do that um but you know most most people never get to do that but um the teachings you really um, gave us that opportunity to to get dirty um to work long hours um, you know, we always say, oh, it sounds like it was horrible. Why do you talk about those parts? It's like, well, no, that's the real world. Um, they did not, you know, try to make it seem like, oh, it's going to be perfect and great every day. And you're just going to um, love every day. You're going to get dirty. You're going to get hurt. Sometimes you're going to get really tired. But if you stick through it, all those cool things come as part of the reward too. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there was, um, I've had one experience where, um, I went and did uh, a, basically a day at a zoo <laughs> that had had a, a natural disaster and all the animals were fine, but I went and I just helped with the cleanup and everything. And right. I, I was a zookeeper for the day. And, um, I did get some cool animal time doing that. Actually, I, they rewarded me with some really amazing mm -hmm. experiences. Uh, when I got home, I felt like every part of my body had broken. Um, you know, I'm a professional musician. We have a pretty pampered life overall. And um, I, I remember up to that point, I was kind of like, well, maybe I'll, I don't know, I love this so much. Maybe I should look into becoming a keeper. And as soon as I did that, I was like, oh, no, no, let's, let's keep, keep spreading the good word that keepers are doing and people are doing. Let's do the podcast and um, not have, you know, three distinct types of poop on me at the end of the day. And I can't even get to the shower to shower them off because I might yeah. die. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't really get to do much of that ever physical work anymore in my role. Um, and I miss it some days and other days. Um, I think, I don't know how people my age are still zookeepers because I can barely get out of bed some days. So um, I'm always in awe of people that are still doing that, that, physical portion of their job at this part of our lives. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm good friends with Paul Reinhardt at the Cincinnati zoo. Um, mm. and he's been on the, the pod as well. And, um, he has been a keeper for like 40 years and I'm just like, dude, ah, my back hurts when he tells me that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty happy that I've gotten to this point in my career and I can still stand upright <laughs> without, without major doses of ibuprofen on a daily basis. So Fair. Yeah, no, that's, that's really cool though. Um, I, I, I wish there was something like the teaching zoo for like, you know, 
everything. Like as a music, if you had told me all the stuff that would go into being a musician other than being a musician, um, I would have been shocked. And I think that's why more people aren't successful in a lot of careers is when they start to actually see what it takes. They're like, oh, oh, this is, I just wanted to play the drums, man. Like whatever. Um, you know, I think, I, I think that's I think really that- cool. That's very true about education. I think in general is that I, I am a big believer and, and I, I'm a believer in professional development is that, you know, the vocational aspects of, of education are kind of um, either not maligned or they're not looked at as, as equally sometimes as the academic part. And, you know, I, I think college was fine. Um, people ask if I wanted to go, if I could go back to college, would I go back again? Oh, God, no. I mean, for all the fun <laughs> stuff. But, you know, I wanted to work in a zoo. I just wanted to get through it and I wanted to get my degree so I could go work with animals um, in in the the setting. So um, I I think more people should, like you said, have that hands-on experience when they're doing stuff because it helps you make those decisions. Um, Mm. You know, I know a lot of people that I went to college with over the years in different fields and like nobody stays in the same field because they get into the field of their dreams and then they think, oh, this is not what I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I uh, I have a degree in human resources and huh. um, I knew that I was not going to use it except for as a fallback if music didn't work. But like when I graduated, I also had no idea what it would mean to work in human resources. I can still cite to you a lot of the laws that I learned and a lot of, uh, you know, strategies for hiring people and stuff. Um, I, I can tell you all of that. But I don't know what it would be like to go get a job today in HR and and how I would handle that and what the forms would look like and what my nine to five would look like. I have no clue. I never learned that. Most of my friends that went into um, HR um, uh, are no longer in HR because <laughs> they said, I want to get into HR because I really love working with people. And then they got into HR and thought, I really don't like working with people. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a trade off. Fair, fair. I like, yeah, that's, that seems fair. So (laughs) mm, boy, do I relate to that sometimes. Um, but yeah, cool. So let's, let's talk about your current position. It's got a a long and lengthy title and it means that you are incredibly important. Um, supposedly I see you shaking your head. No, but Uh, yeah, uh, let's not oversell it. (laughs) But so what exactly do you do? Um, you know, one thing I tell people is, uh, the longer your title, all that means is the more responsibility you have. Fair. And I think that's just it is. So um, uh, I, I report to our, our CEO, our president CEO, and um, my role is to oversee all these departments. And that's everything from all the animal care departments, the taxonomic ones like mammals and birds, to our, our veterinary health um, department, behavioral husbandry, which is training enrichment, um, our records, our zoological records, where all the data is going in. Um, our horticulture department that takes care of our beautiful grounds and all the open spaces plus the animal exhibits um, in that way. Um, uh, let's see, who am I forgetting there? Oh, uh, conservation research. Um, so we have a department for that that I get to um, oversee that department. And again, we, we just have an incredible team of people that, that you know, again, does all these uh amazing disciplines and oversees it. So, you know, my job is to make sure we're staying on course for the organization. My job is to um, make sure that at that very high level that we're doing everything we need and to help. What I usually say is, you know, regardless of what level you're at, um, you know, my my role and the, the curators, the directors, the department heads, we should be clearing obstacles so everyone else can just do their job more effectively. So, you know, if, like you, that. if you need something, my job is to go, oh, let me just see. Yeah, we have the money. Go get it right now so you can do your job better. Or again, uh, well, is that policy working? Well, if it's not, let's look at the policy. Can we just change it? Well, let's just change it then and, and make sure it works for us. Um, so I like to explain it that way. It sounds simple. And then I wonder, well, if it's so simple. What do I do all day? So, um, <laughs> yeah, I have those days. Well, so I'm curious. Um, we'll jump into some animal stuff in a minute, but you mentioned horticulture. Mm-hmm. And I find horticulture at zoos to be fascinating. I actually really want to get someone from horticulture on it at some point. Um, but, you know, I'm curious, what it, what was it like for you as you were, like, realizing, like, oh, now I'm going to be, you know, overseeing horticulture. I came up in animals. I'm a zookeeper. And, you know, now I have this whole other thing I have to learn. Was there a process for that? Or did you just like trust the people, you know, that were there? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And actually, um, uh, again, one of the one of the many departments that I forgot to mention was also education that I get to oversee too. So I think that's where um, I feel very lucky in my 
uh, earlier roles as a zookeeper or a supervisor, um, we interfaced and interacted with those departments all the time at different levels. So when I was a zookeeper, I managed the plants and the exhibits that the animals interact with. If I wanted to get a new plant, I would work with the, depart- the horticulture department, or if there was a problem with one, you know, I could bring them in. Um, so I learned a lot of that. I learned a lot of my horticultural knowledge working in zoos and aquariums. So I think that kind of sets you up for it. Um, I tell everyone I am I am not an expert in all of these uh, fields. My, my background is not formal education. My background is not horticulture. Um, but you're right. Uh, our role here is to make sure we have the right people um, in those roles doing the right things. So, you know, horticulture specifically, we have a great team here. Um, we have a, a curator of horticulture and we have a team of people under um, that person and they have a vision and they sit down with me and we make sure it's cohesive. And then they sit down with the other department heads. What do you need? What can we provide? This is what we'd like. You know, everything about our world is about negotiation. You know, I, I want to plant this here. Okay, well, the animal's going to eat that. But if you plant it here, you can still get what you want, but um, the animal won't eat it. Great. Let's make that happen then. So, um, yeah, I'm always in awe of all the, the people that work here because they, they know their stuff. I mean, and they, they know, and they work hard to get it done. Um, and I think that's, again, where my role is to say, great, I love that idea. Go for it. You know, just don't, don't, don't stall, just keep running towards it and, and make it better. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, we'll, we'll come back to some more of what you do, but I, I, I've found that if I don't sprinkle in some animal stuff, uh, I get, I get yelled at. So, uh, I wanted to talk about, um, at least a couple of the animals at the zoo and there's specifically y'all have an exhibit, um, that has two of my big four animals. So my favorite animals are sea turtles and tree kangaroos and red pandas and binturongs. Ah. And y'all have a, a interesting approach to, to the exhibit with red panda and binturong. So um, tell me a little bit about that and why you, y'all chose to go that way. I panicked for a second and I thought, oh my God, we have sea turtles and tree kangaroos? Where are they keeping those? <laughs> because sometimes I forget what's going on. Um, fair, the fair. Zoo. <laughs> but no, I, I think it's great. Uh, you know, most people we have found, uh, if you showed them a picture of a red panda, they know what it is, which is fascinating to me. Um, I mean, that's one of the brilliant things about television and the digital age is that um, people know what r- really weird animals are that, you know, 20 years ago, people didn't know what any of this stuff is. I mean, for you to know what a binturong is, is pretty amazing to me. So um, uh, here at the zoo, uh, about five years ago, we opened um, uh, one of our newest exhibits called Lost Kingdom. And Lost Kingdom was focused on um, some of the species we already had at the zoo and some new species we wanted to bring in, which were red panda and binturong. Um, uh, because of the footprint of the site, we really could not build um, a lot of new exhibits. Um, we, we built new exhibits for our snow leopards and our tigers, um, our Komodo dragons, but we weren't able to provide you know, a ton more spaces. And, uh, but we knew we wanted some new animals because again, people want to see new stuff. We want to work with new things. So um, we were trying to figure out another animal to put over um, in this area, in this footprint. And we kept going back and forth about these two species. Binturong um, are from Southeast Asia. They're real tropical. They're covered in fur. So you wouldn't think that they're a tropical animal, but um, they're also known as bear cats because they look like a cross between a bear and a cat. And uh, they, they're just like really long, furry, black animals. And uh, in the summer, that would be great. But we weren't going to be able to build kind of an indoor facility that you could really see them and enjoy them when it's cold. So we're, what we're going to do, we're going to build an exhibit that you just see something a few months out of the year. Um, I usually tell people, you don't come to the zoo to talk about the animals you didn't see over the dinner table. True, true. So, um, so then the, the next question was like, oh, we'll do red panda, but you know, it gets into, you know, it gets into the triple digits in the summer here often. And I don't really feel like I wanted to have a panda kind of sitting out in the heat, really not feeling good, being miserable in the heat. So we went back and forth and I, I kind of talked to some people that I knew and we did our research and we said, you know what, why don't we just do a split exhibit? So, you know, we can double our, our, our adventure here. We can have two new species at the zoo. We can have them seasonally. We can swap them out. We had a holding facility in the back that's climate controlled. So in the winter, it's heated and in the summer, it's air conditioned. And those animals can kind of have a rest from the, you know, the public. They can go back there. They can do their thing. And, um, you know, again, we can increase our collection twofold rather than just having one species we increased by two. So I, I think that also is about where we look at exhibit design in zoos. We should be building flexibility wherever possible. 
you know, if you build a gorilla exhibit, it's probably going to just be for gorillas. You're not going right. to put something else in it. But here we think about, well, if we didn't have species X, could we put species Y and Z in it in the future? Well, yeah, now we can. So that's also about that flexibility is if we needed to change out either panda or binturong someday, the exhibit works for other species. Right. And do you do much of an overhaul when you when you bring out, you know, say the binturong and, and put the red panda away? No, we don't really have to, because again, um, that's another thing we look at very carefully is their life history. I mean, they really are, are boreal species, both of them. They like to climb around a lot. Um, they have similar needs. They don't, they don't um, you know, have to have tons of space, but they have to have enough complex space. So being three-dimensional space for climbing animals is important. So we can build up in the exhibit. Um, we can change it out. There's actually, you know, a pool when it's warm enough that we can fill so they can wade in that. The panda, as it gets warm in the spring, can wade in it. Binturongs actually will swim. Um, so again, we often find them kind of floating around the pool, enjoying it when it's really hot out. So again, uh, we, we really did, I think, the right thing by designing it to be flexible and then providing this. And then we have a lot of wonderful members that, you know, come to the zoo throughout the year. And we want everybody to kind of have a different experience. You know, oh, we saw that last time. Oh, well, now you get to see something different if you come in the spring or if you come in the fall for the same exhibit, which, you know, again, I think is a new concept for some places. So, yeah, that's awesome. Can you tell me anything about Addison, the, the red panda that I saw? Um, I can tell you, um, her name's Addison. <laughs> Good. All right. All right. Cool. Would you like me to tell you something? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. No, again, uh, you know, she, to me is, is kind of a typical red panda. She's, she's kind of doing her thing at the exhibit. Um, often, um, they're kind of curled up during different parts of the day. Um, when you, when you live in a zoo and aquarium, um, in, in association with zoos and aquariums, you have pretty good life. You know, we're taking care of your social needs, your, your, uh, nutritional needs, your behavioral needs. So again, um, she gets to be a, a really laid back red panda. Um, and again, she, one of the things we also look at too, is, is that transition you mentioned is after you kind of live in the isolation in the back, you're, you're enjoying it because it's quiet. There's not a lot of disturbances. It's like my, my dream world to live in. Um, but then you come out and there's guests and people are making noise or people, you know, are running around having a great time, but we do pay attention to that. And we do kind of assess that behavior when the animals move and say, you know, is she okay? Is she, you know, taking this um, in stride? And actually she always does. It's just, she seems kind of annoyed where you're looking at her type of thing, but, <laughs> um, but no, otherwise um, she's, she's a wonderful animal for us because again, people love red pandas and they want to see them. And, and you know, um, I'm not sure where she was when you're during your visit, but we have a couple different viewing options. And one of them is literally like you're a foot away from her through a pane of glass. And it, it's really quiet, actually. Like if you're inside, you really can't hear if someone's yelling through it. So she just curls up and sleeps there and people can get real close to her. So I think it's a great experience, too. Yeah, she was at the top of a rock and sleeping and very content. And she looked up a bunch like she kept waking up and just kind of like, you know, looking around. But yeah, she was yeah. you could tell she was very calm and, and seemed very cozy, which was lovely. She's always on the lookout, though. It's like, oh, is are the keepers coming to feed me again? Mm -hmm. Maybe not so much. Well, I'm going back to sleep. So, <laughs> yeah, that was very cool to see. I would I would love to see Bintrongs. I've been to the zoo twice and uh, and i've i've been during the winter so uh, i'm i'm not complaining about seeing red pandas but uh bintrong swimming is a pretty cool concept yeah i mean our, our pool is not you know incredibly deep but again they can kind of just paddle a little bit but mainly they can walk through it especially right. when it gets hot and again it's just a different environmental aspect for them to explore you know when they're out there in the summer bintrong are typically more nocturnal so a lot of times when we're doing events at the zoo in the evenings in the summer that's when they're just all over they're really mobile they're, they're interacting a lot because we have um, a couple of them so you know again we're hoping Again, we're hoping someday to be able to have a uh, uh, Binturong offspring that we can also show off because they're incredibly cute when they're born. Yes. So. Kits are amazing. Um, yeah. I have I have seen bottle-fed babies like mm -hmm. a week old and then also ones that were like a couple months old running around. Um, that you know the, the kits were at Nashville. The, uh, the babies or the juveniles were at Roger Williams Park and they just tear that exhibit up in the best way. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. That's, that's, we had our fingers crossed. We, we have a, a pairing for Binturong that we're really hoping will produce some babies. Nice. Very cool. Um, do you happen to know the Bintrong's names offhand? Oh, uh, you're going to stump me on this. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I am not an na animal namer person and especially working in birds, um, kind of growing up, you usually have hundreds and hundreds of birds to take right, care of. So right. you, you technically don't name them. There's maybe a couple. So I am a huge disappointment at the zoo, uh, but, 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 
but you're absolutely right. I mean, people, people, um, our guests know the names of all the animals right? and they will talk to me about them. And I just think, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you, I only asked because since I've seen some of those kits and juveniles, right. I, I like to know if that, you know, where they are and that kind of thing. So, right. um, so, um, while we're talking about, uh, this, this new area that has the lovely, uh, red panda and Binturong exhibit, Y'all also have a tiger cub, and uh, that cub was putting on a dang show when I was there. So please talk to me about about mom and baby. So, um, uh, yeah, we we are very excited about um, our tigers here at Tulsa Zoo. Um, we when we built that new exhibit, um, we wanted to uh, build for the future for for us working with tigers, and we specifically have chosen to work with Malayan tigers, which are a subspecies of tigers that are managed in zoos and aquariums here. Um, there's only, uh, depending on the day, um, about 52 Malayan tigers in AZA zoos. Wow. Um, we have, and we have five of them right now. So, you know, we have 10% of the North American population of Malayan tigers here at the Tulsa Zoo. Amazing. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's a cool statistic. We wish there were more of them, so we didn't have that percentage, but again, we do what we can. And um, so, yeah, so we... Um, have a couple different exhibits. We have two outside exhibits. We have an uh, indoor area. You can see them. And then we have extensive back area plus another holding area for tigers. But um, our, our tigers used to be in our 1960s cat grottos, which a lot of people grew up seeing. You know, you look across a, a very wide moat expanse and you see animals without bars. That was the big deal. Well, now people, you know, with, with glass and, and exhibit design, we can do it where you can look and you can be inches away. And that's what we wanted to provide too. We wanted to just see tigers up close. So um, mom, um, tiger Ava, was born here at the Tulsa Zoo, and she was born in our old exhibit before the new exhibit opened. And she had two brothers, so the three of them were born on exhibit. They grew up um, in the back area because the moat was too steep. And um, typically, we wouldn't want the young tigers to go into the exhibit because if they tumble down, they may not be able to get back up. Um, so, so her mom, Ava, was nine months old before she went on exhibit and, and our guests got to see her. And at nine months old, she's still smaller, but she looks like a big tiger. Right, right. So, um, you know, our goal was to, to really let people experience what tigers look like when they're born. And so um, Dara, her daughter um, was born here at the zoo and uh, she was born uh, right behind the uh, public space. And within two to three days, I believe we had a camera and we had set that already in the in the uh, public area. So you could come and see mom and baby um, just a couple of days after birth on that camera. And, you know, we always tell people, we're like, you know, that's like 10 feet from you, right? Because <laughs> you, know, you see a camera and you're thinking it's like, well, that's a world away. It's like, no, it's literally behind the wall right in front of you. That is really cool. So people felt that connection right away. And, and so as soon as Dara, Dara was able to kind of, um, you know, get her, her sea legs and start walking around, we could open that door. And it was literally just one little sliding door and, and she could come out and mom could go grab her and drag her back because mom wasn't ready to let her be out there. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so our community and, and, and everyone who comes here has really gotten to finally see um, how mom and baby interact how, how mom takes care of the baby. You know, we have our, we have guests that, you know, they come out practically every day. They have a membership. They do a quick walk at the zoo with the kids and then they go on to other things during their day. And, you know, they've watched that animal grow up. So um, uh, yeah, even Dara, or Dara put on quite a show, you know, they can go outside. Um, Dara is, is a young tiger. She doesn't have any siblings. So mom is her, her plaything, and mom does a great job playing with her until she can't anymore. <laughs> and then, Mom just tolerates it until mom doesn't tolerate it anymore. And then Dara goes and plays on her own. <laughs> yeah, it it was amazing to watch. Good. Um, and I actually got to spend some time. Uh, a couple of the members of your horticulture team were there um, just watching Dara and hadn't seen her, I guess, for a week or so. And um, we, we kind of just bonded talking about how cool that was. And it was so cool to see like you know, the horticulture team hanging out with a tiger, which is not horticulture. And just, they were so excited and had such ownership of, of it. It was cool to see, you know? That, and that is something, um, we, we were just talking about that with a, another group of people about how, um, at Susan Aquariums, people usually think, well, the animal care staff is really the ones that bond with these animals, or they have that special connection. And 
I've seen it over my career, as many other people have, is like, no, people in, in our operations maintenance department, people in marketing, people in horticulture, they know those animals, you know, as I always say, the development team knows the names of all the animals at the zoo, and I know maybe half a dozen, <laughs> you know, again, right, that's right. just, I can't keep all that knowledge straight, but they know them all. They, you know, people ask about the animals and then our guests do the same thing. I'll have guests specifically talk to me and use the animals house names that we call them by here. And sometimes I'm just thinking, how do you know all this as a guest? <laughs> well, same thing. They've talked to the staff, the staff want to share this. I mean, that's what we want to do here is like, we want to get excited about animals. We want to get excited about nature and, you know, it's hard not to share that with people. Absolutely. I mean, that's what inspired this podcast. I, I started off looking for it because I assumed it already existed. Um, it didn't. But it was just because every time I would go to a zoo, I would start to talk to a keeper. And even the most seemingly antisocial at first, as soon as I would be like, so tell me about your insert animal here. Blah, 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 words just come flying out and their eyes would light up and their passion would show. And I was like, oh, OK, first of all, you are my type of person. Even if it was a person who, like, when I was like, hey, can you tell me where the men's room is? They'd be like, uh, um, um, left, then left. Then I'd be like, cool, by the way, what's, what's the name of this red panda? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. So so that's Addison, and she is six years old, and she is the most gorgeous panda you've ever seen. I'm like, where did this come from? And that that was honestly what inspired me. I was like, man, everybody should get to meet these people and see this passion and then learn about animals through that. And yeah, I think it's huge. Yeah. And, and, and you're absolutely right. And I, I, I love your um, you know, story about you didn't talk to the zookeepers, the, the title zookeeper about our tiger. You talked to our horticulture staff mm -hmm. because they knew cool stuff because everybody wants to share it with each other. So, you know, information is, is not, you know, power here. It's like, we just share everything. Everybody wants to know about what's going on. I mean, on the flip side, sometimes with animals, we tend to forget because it's so normal. It's like, oh, this thing happened. We have to remind each other sometimes like, oh, we need to tell everybody that's going on or share this right. with everybody. Well, it's clearly working because literally the reason I spoke to them was they were standing there. And I mean, they were in the, the uniform and stuff, but they were, were talking about Dara in such a way that I went, oh, y'all are her keepers. It wasn't even, oh, are you? It was, oh, y'all. And I was like, so I, you know, I, I, I have this podcast, blah, blah, blah. Like I, I just wanted to tell them about what I do and hear more about what they do and just be friendly. And they're like, no, no, we're on the, we're on the horticulture team. And I was like, I love that even more <laughs> because like you said, they had the knowledge, they had it, the, the passion. It was really cool to, to see that. Yeah. I dug yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what you mentioned about, you know, the, the social aspect of, of people is often, you're right, that the joke 20, 30 years ago is like, well, why do you work with animals? Well, because I don't want to work with people. <laughs> and, and really, that's the joke on everyone now in zoos and aquariums is you cannot ever just work with one thing. You have to be kind of that person. You have to be the spokesperson for whatever's going on at the moment that someone asks you that question, because you're right. Um, and that's where we get excited that people know about what's going on here. We want to share it because Often when you're in animal care, you're zipping behind the areas, but it's the people that are in the rail, in the rail bed area, pulling up weeds. It's the person changing the trash. It's the person selling you a snow cone. Those are the people that really need to know stuff because they're their front line for letting people know what's going on here and having that great kind of interaction. Absolutely. I love that attitude. Um, so y'all have a couple of really interesting buildings at the zoo, the life in the buildings. And I'm curious, like, do you know, can you speak at all to like what the philosophy behind that was and why they're created that way? Because I think they're fascinating. I remember the first time I was at the Tulsa Zoo, um, I, I actually knew that there were, were, were red pandas to be seen. Um, at the time it was Bo. And um, at, yet as soon as I walked in, I, I will normally run to the red panda exhibit. I, I looked to, I, I believe my right, and I saw life in the, life in the, and I was like, you have my attention. And I had to go over there and explore that area first. So, um, yeah, I, I'm very excited to hear that because I never know kind of, you know, how people experience the zoo uh, from a guest experience. Um, but again, th there are some really cool things out here. And uh, so the current area uh, life in the uh, really is the wildlife trek complex. But um, that is kind of its, its kind of second act. 
Um, those four buildings are connected through walkways and have indoor exhibits, outdoor exhibits. And they were originally built here in the 70s as the North American Living Museum Complex. Um, so we used to be the Tulsa Zoo and Living Museum. And it was a really amazing concept at the time that the zoo was, was doing. Um, lots of, of museum aspects, lots of cultural ties to animals or regions. So those four buildings were regions of North America. It was the Arctic tundra or the Eastern forest. So animals were kind of matched to those habitats, but then there was also that idea of like, well, who is living in these areas? So people who are living in, in the Arctic, there were um, biofacts or artifacts or cultural representations that can talk about surviving in the Arctic and how animals and people work together. It was amazing. And the zoo did a lot of that over the years. Um, zoos and aquariums have changed. And, you know, there are amazing museums here in Tulsa. And our focus was being pulled then to say, you know what, I think we need to be the Tulsa Zoo. And I think we should let the museum piece be done by people who really can do the museum piece well. Um, I think when everything was built here, it was, you know, the North American Living Museum actually won awards for its uh, concepts. But so uh, it's it's time to come. There was a lot of renovation that needed to be done. So in, uh, like I said, the, the uh, 2010 uh, time period, um, the buildings were closed. A lot of money was put into renovation of um, uh, heating, air, all the not fun stuff. But then um, we came in with a little bit of money at the end and we tried to you know, spruce up some of the exhibits. And we thought, let's give it a new name. And um, we worked together with our education uh, staff and our exhibits team at the time. And we came up with this idea of you're going on a trek. And that's where it became the wildlife trek. And a lot of the things in the buildings already stood for those uh, habitats. So that's where we said, you know, what if you were living in this? You were living in a cold place. And that's where you know, each building is now life in the cold, life in the forest, life in the desert, and life in the water. And we try to theme the animals and the habitats around those needs from behavior-based. Um, so instead of saying Australia, we say, well, what if you live in a cold area? Um, it could be a different part of the world, but it's about how do you adapt to cold. So you know, we have Arctic foxes, we have chinchillas, and uh, we have brown bear. Yep. And snowy owl. So again, they all live in different areas. They all exploit the cold regions in diff different ways. So we can really talk about it differently. Um, and you're right. It gives us a lot more flexibility now that it's not just North America. We can, we can do things from all over the world in there. Um, so yeah, I, I, and it's also a lot of indoor stuff. So during our winter or during their heat of summer, people can really get up close to stuff. We have a couple aviaries that you walk through and the birds are all around you. Um, and we're always trying to upgrade what we're doing. Um, just in the last uh, year or so um, in our forest, we added um, a 16 foot reticulated python and she is beautiful. And when she's stretched out in her exhibit, she can fully stretch out. Um, you can really see how big she is. And, and you know, they're really amazing forest animals that people can encounter. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's pretty unique for sure. Yeah, I really like it. Um, and there's one other exhibit that I wanted to touch on, which is the Jaguar exhibit. Mm. Um, and I, I'm just I'm curious if you have any any knowledge about how it was put together or or how the Jags use it or anything, because I am obsessed with it. Um, early on, Ross Safari, before this was a podcast, it was just an Instagram account, daily zoo photos from all around the country mm -hmm. that I take. And there were about five or six photos that inspired me to start it as an Instagram account. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm getting kind of good at this. And like, you know, whatever, I catch cool things. Um, and one of them was through the glass at the Jaguar window mm -hmm. of one of the Jaguars at Tulsa. Mm -hmm. Ironically, another one of them was of a sea turtle at the Oklahoma Aquarium on the same mm -hmm. day. So even though I had been going to zoos at this point for a couple of years and stuff, two photos in one day really helped launch Ross Safari. Um, and so I don't know if you have any interesting insight into the Jags or the exhibit. It's a gorgeous exhibit. Um, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, the, the Jaguar exhibit was built as part of our rainforest um, complex. So we have a, a very large indoor rainforest habitat, and the Jags kind of have um, a separate piece as you exit. And um, yeah, the, the zoo has been very successful with the Jaguar exhibit. We've had multiple different pairs. We've had um, offspring from multiple pairs that have gone out to other zoos. Um, we currently have two older females that um, uh, have been introduced, which is very um, odd and, and very rare. Typically, jags are, are very solitary, but these older females have really done well and we were able to introduce them. So now they have each other and they can be together or we can split them up. 
But um, yeah, no, it's really, it is nice because you can get really up close. The animals, I think, obviously feel very secure because they do lay by the window often. Um, uh, Really, really nice. They they get off the ground and, and drape themselves over the branching. Um, but again, it's, it's kind of deceiving, you know, it, it's a really good exhibit. It, it, if it was bigger, I think it would be harder to see the Jaguars, but often we think we're like, gosh, I wish it was like 10 times bigger than this, but it meets all their needs. Um, and again, there's a, there's a behind the scenes area where like we have individual areas, we can separate them. There's a backyard for them too. So if somebody's just having a day and they don't want to be on exhibit, they can lay out <laughs> in the grass behind the scenes and be good there. Um, but it's really served us well. And, and again, sometimes the simple things are the best. And, and I think it's especially the way the rainforest works. You walk through the whole thing, see it's so much cool stuff, and then you walk out and there's the Jags. Typically, I think a lot of zoos, you put that at the entrance as your draw. Like, right. oh, we'll get people into the building by showing them this animal. But I love it's at the end. It's like the payoff because people just stand there and you're right. Jaguars are massive, impressive, beautiful animals. And for them to be up close for you just to stare at them. And some of the windows are real low. So kids, you know, don't have to be picked up. Kids can just stand there and look eye to eye to with a Jaguar. And, you know, that's not something you normally want to do. But again, through the glass, you're safe to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so cool that there are two older females. I just assumed that I got lucky and was there during breeding season or something because, like you said, they're solitary animals. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, they, they interacted. They were like yeah. cuddling at one point and like, yeah, no, it was it was really cool. And that's a testament to to the team here because again, they were willing to accept that elder female as a potential companion. And then they just kind of watched the signals and said, you know, let's try this. What are we thinking? How can we do this? So they made it all happen. Um, you know, there's no cookbook for that. And also, you know, we're doing what's best for our jaguars. Our, our, our first female, she had had cubs here in the past. She's now past breeding age. Her mate had passed away. She's going to live out her life here. So again, we're, we're still supporting, um, you know, the population of jaguars and zoos and aquariums because we're supporting those two females. And, you know, as time goes on, it may change. We may have breeding back, but we're also able and to tell other people about this success. Like, you know, did you ever think about trying this at your facility? Maybe if the cats personalize, you know, work for this, you can do it too. So I think, you know, it doesn't always have to be earth shattering research. It can be some like very small successes that can help everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. That is that is really cool. Um, all right, so let's transition to the conservation work that y'all do at the zoo. Tell me, tell me some cool stories. I I have a mission every time I talk to anyone at a zoo. I, I beg you and and the PR teams and anyone tell more people about the actual behind the scenes cool conservation work that's being done because I feel like it's not out there enough, and I feel like that is the number one thing causing anti-captivity people to be able to be so vocal sometimes, you know? Um, I talk to a lot of people. A lot of people reach out to me about the anti-cap stuff, and when I start sharing stories that I have heard and and say, and I know they're doing this because I've gone behind the scenes and I've seen Mm -hmm. this, you know, breeding population of toads or mice or, you know, rattlesnakes, whatever, they're, they're shocked a lot of the time. And it doesn't always change attitudes, the internet being what it is, but, like, I think this is so important. So tell me all the things. (laughs) So... Um, one of the cool things about um, the the zoo is, you know, we, we, we went through a big change about 10 years ago. We, we transferred how the zoo was run. So um, we kind of were like restarting the zoo about 10 years ago. And, and it was, uh, I got to come soon after that. And we really restarted um, our conservation initiatives. Um, we we uh, installed somebody to kind of oversee all of it. And then we put in place our our conservation plan, our green practices plan about how we're going to be more sustainable. Um, And and again, we we just tried to move very slowly. We didn't have to just build something to to have it. We wanted to build it to be smart. Um, So right now, our primary, we have about a dozen conservation projects that we fund. Um, and, And again, we wanted to do everything from local, regional, to nationwide, to international. And our other uh, mission with that was just that we wanted to kind of have our own impact. Um, Often there are organizations out there doing amazing work. And if you send them, you know, anyone can send them a check and say, well, I'm helping that bigger thing. But we wanted to see kind of real um, world positive change by what we were able to provide. So what we try to tell people first at the zoo is everyone that comes to our zoo is funding conservation because that's money that we send out to these projects. 
So I, we want people to know that your visit matters here. While you enjoyed yourself, like you enjoyed the animals, you enjoyed your interactions, um, by coming to the zoo, that money went to one of these projects. You know, your dollar didn't, but the, the overall money that we are able to give and the more money we take in, the more money we're able to put out there. So um, we've been really strategic about when we choose projects. Um, some for species, typically they're for species we have, and we can talk about more, but um, sometimes they're just really cool things that come up uh, of like one of the strange ones to me um, was because, you know, our chinchillas I mentioned in our life in the cold building, they're the type of chinchillas that people have as pets. They're the domestic form. Um, there are no uh, true wild form chinchillas in, in human care. But we found um, uh, through another zoo colleague that there was a project going on in Chile to support wild chinchillas. And we thought, well, let's find out more about this. And, um, you know, we sent some, some money and we said, we want to support you. And mainly what we're trying to do is say, like, here, we'll give you a little, what are you going to get back? And they gave back communication and their plans. And so it strengthened our relationship. So each year we were able to increase it. And a couple of years ago, um, you know, we had a fundraiser for Save the Wild Chinchillas. Um, we practically uh, raised enough money to fund them for the entire year that year. Wow. And, you know, really what they're doing is habitat restoration in these areas of Chile in really super remote, harsh areas, um, because that's where the animals live. And, you know, when they disrupt the areas for, for agriculture or different things, it's really pushing the last vestiges of their habitat out, um, uh, uh, totally out of existence. So, I mean, it's it seems silly to people because first people don't know that chinchillas are wild. And, and again, um, we don't have the actual wild chinchillas, but we have chinchillas you can actually see up close and say, you know, we're really funding this. And, and when we're talking about funding, we're talking about, you know, not a lot of money. We're not talking millions of dollars here, but, you know, it's so, so low impact as far as what we can provide and high impact for what they get out of it. And, and that's one of the things that also is part of our conservation strategies for whether it's Save the Wild Chinchilla or some of the other ones, is that it's never just about putting money towards the animal. It's about how do we help the people in the region also, because the people in the region are the key. Um, you know, we want to talk about saving an animal, but, you know, I really can't get upset if people are eating the animal in the region because it's the only way to feed their family. So as Americans, it's hard to not say, well, don't do this, but, you know, <laughs> come on can't tell people how to live um, in everywhere in the world. So, um, you know, I, uh, another one we do is that it's called the West African Primate Conservation Action um, uh, Group. And, and again, just like they say, they work in West Africa, they work with primates. Um, we have a similar primate to one they work with here, so we can talk about and make a connection. But pretty much we're funding the people that work there. And we're funding the people that keep the forest safe from logging. Or, you know, kind of say, you know, you can't build roads here. And, um, you know, we love them because when we send them funding every year, they send us pictures of their team wearing their new rain boots and their new GPS um, uh, uh, deals that they get and their new raincoats. You know, they painted our logo on the boat that they bought because nice. they have to tr go up and down the river to make sure that logging isn't going on. So, I mean, that's what we just said. Like, we need very little back, but that's amazing when people do that. So, so those are some of them that we do. And again, we do local ones. We do, we're big in monarch um, conservation here. We want people to plant habitat gardens. So we do a lot of work with that. So um, yeah, I'm very proud of what we're able to do and we're going to keep expanding it. That's awesome. I love that. I think it's so cool that now to have your, you know, AZA certification, you need a conservation department. I think that was a great change that the AZA made. Um, you know, most, most zoos, most accredited zoos anyway, we do, do already do the work, but it's, it's important to have it be the focus, you know? Yeah. Most, most zoos, I mean, it's hard because again, our, our role here day to day is to take care of this facility and all the people here and then all our guests and the animals. Um, and most of our animals are going to live their lives here with us. Um, we're not going to probably send them back out to the wild. That's not their role. Their role is to get people to know that these animals exist, exist and that they're probably in trouble somewhere. And, you know, even in our own world, there are animals in trouble here in Oklahoma or in the United States. And, and you know, respect animals. Put up the bird feeder, you know, get a bird bath, put a brush pile that animals can hide in your backyard. Um, that's what we want people to do. We know most people are not going to go stop, you know, elephant slaughter in Africa for ivory. Um, but there are people that will do that. And, you know, we just need to find the right people and fund them appropriately. So, um, again, I don't expect everyone to, to do international conservation. We, we need to kind of balance it out so people get what it's really about. Totally makes sense to me. I love that. Um, and then we are we are winding down here. Um, is there is there anything else that you wanted to talk about about the zoo? 
Um, no, I, we are we are 94 years old this year, which is kind of amazing. Um, nice. There are a lot of zoos that are 100 or turning over 100 uh, in the next few years. And and again, there are many over 100 already. And I think that's just amazing to me when I look back. It's like zoos and aquariums have always been here for most people. And I think, you know, we just want to encourage people, you know, if you have zoos and aquariums nearby, like go see them and talk to people just like you were mentioning. Because you may say, oh, I I don't know if I like zoos or aquariums. Well, then go talk to people. Because the people that work there are not there to get rich. They're there because they have passion for it. And, and they're willing to share that passion with you and t- tell you why. And it may give you some insight. And, and again, it's never been easier to kind of get with those people. That, you know, Most Susan and Grams all have a keeper chat or an education program or something that you can actually hear stuff and ask. And I always tell, say people should ask tough questions. Because again, if we can't answer them, then maybe we're not doing the right thing. But you know, there's a lot of us doing what we do. So I got to think we're doing it for the right reasons. Love that. Love that so much. Um, I already talked about some conservation uh, organizations that y'all work with, but is there anyone else that you would like to give a shout out to? Oh, again, we work with so many amazing people. I mean, we work with the American Bering Beetle Project and, and Oklahoma State University with that. Um, we work on elephant conservation. Uh, we work with the Mabula Hornbill Project in Africa. So I can just go on and on and name them. But I mean, our website has all that. Um, and we encourage people like, look at that and look at why we're doing it. We try to explain why we're working with those groups because it, it's a real process for us to choose one and to partner with somebody. We don't just do it lightly. Um, and it takes us years actually to get a really solid foundation with our conservation partners. So they trust us also. And, and so because we have to, when we promise we're going to do something, we have to follow through too. So Nice. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show, but there's one tale left to go, you're gonna laugh and say, oh no, it's time for the Rossifari Poop Story. Hit me. Oh, geez. I was thinking about, um, you know, I don't know if it's a poop story. Poop story. I think it's just more of, you know, the story that you've probably heard many times is where, um, you know, you, you've gone somewhere as someone who works in animal care and you get this look from somebody and you're wondering why they're giving you that look. And then you're thinking to yourself, is it me? <laughs> and uh, I remember um, in my my last zoo, um, I, I was the curator, but you know, someone was sick and I had to go work with our penguins and, um, I was feeding the penguins and I had, you know, my rubber boots on, of course. And, you know, if you work with fishing species, you just smell like fish. So I, you just don't even think about it. But I remember I had to go up to our, our front administration building to sign a time card for somebody. And I'm standing there talking and signing the time card and doing whatever. And, and just the, the people that worked in the front office just kept stopping what they were doing and they would just look at me. And I think, am, am I saying something inappropriate? What am I doing? And and finally, just, I don't know why they couldn't have said it. Somebody just said, you just stink really bad today. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, sorry, I was working penguins. Like it was no big deal. Cause I'm just used to, they're like, no, Joe, you smell more like fish than you've ever smelled before. And I thought, wow, that's really, for you guys to say that, that's pretty blunt. So I just finished what I was doing. I was like, oh, I apologize. I said, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Well, I got back to the penguin building and I was going to go back to my office. So I was changing my shoes and I didn't realize I had dropped a fish in my boot (laughs) at some point. And by the time I had walked up there, walked all the way back, it had pretty much like been pulverized into my sock. (laughs) Oh, that is so gross. Oh, that is So, so gross. So yeah, I guess I can't really blame them that I probably really smelled like fish more than ever. So I, I just took my sock off and threw it away and put my shoes on and went to my office and thought, well, there's just another day. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Um, one of my messages to people right now is make sure you have a spare uh, mask if you go into the Penguin Building. Because if you're even in there for just five minutes, your mask is going to reek of fish the rest of the day. Um, and I, yeah, Ooh. Oof, that's that's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, people, like I said, you know, people think about poop or, you know, animal smell. But yeah, it's like, well, what they eat sometimes smells too. But you become, you know, the, like the stay saying you're nose blind. Right. So I'm always nose blind to it. But I just think, oh, those poor people in that office. I'm sure they had the the glade out spraying after <laughs> I left. I, I don't doubt it. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this, uh, Joe. I really appreciate it. No problem. I, I appreciate the opportunity and the time just flew by. So I really want to thank you. Thank you. That 
was that was fun. I enjoyed that interview tremendously. Um, you know, I'm I'm so grateful to Joe for being on and for sharing all that cool stuff. And I just I really love the Tulsa Zoo. Uh, you know, actually, I have to I have to say, as a musician who spends a lot of time on the road, there are certain things that just surprise me in this world. And one of those is the fact that I really, really have loved every experience I have ever had in the state of Oklahoma, except for driving on the windy roads, as I mentioned in the intros. But hashtag tour life has now taken me through Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Broken Arrow, and Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And I've literally loved, like, all of the people and all of the places and the theaters are all really great. I found some amazing coffee, really good juice bars. Yeah, I don't know. I just I like a lot of things that I have encountered in Oklahoma, which is not something I would have expected before I encountered them in Oklahoma. Anyway, if you're interested in finding out more about the Tulsa Zoo, you can go to at Tulsa Zoo on social media or TulsaZoo.org online to find out cool zoo-related things like, you know, pictures of animals and, you know, stuff like that. Y'all know what's there by now. I'm just being a goofball. Uh, but I highly recommend that you check it out and go and support this incredible institution. And don't forget, friends, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.